All right, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and uh, we're going to turn to Psalm 9, and I had considered asking uh, Pastor, Bruce, Pastor Chris to come up here and join me, and we would sing the psalm instead of just do a reading, um, but then I looked, I believe uh, Psalm 10, the title of it is, Why Do You Hide Yourself? And I think that we might end up having to ask the congregation that if we came up and sang. So we are just going to read Psalm 9 this morning as Pastor Bruce continues his series, Summer in the Psalms. If you're using the Pew Bible, it starts at the bottom of page 531. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, Lord, you are worthy of praise. Because you sit enthroned forever, you have established your throne for justice You do judge the world with righteousness, and you judge people with uprightness, and you are a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. God, may those of us who know your name, may we put our trust in you, because you do not forsake those who seek you. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One of the more astonishing, even striking stories in the Old Testament is King Solomon's judgment between two women who both claimed the same baby. It seemed like a a rather impossible case for King Solomon to decide. Here's the way it it was presented to King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. And I read, One day a woman said to King Solomon, Please, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, she also had a baby, and we were alone. 
No one else was with us in the house. Just the two of us were there. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your servant was asleep. She laid him in her arms and she put her dead son in my arms. And when I got up in the morning to nurse my son, I discovered he was dead. That morning when I looked closely at him, I realized that he was not the son I gave birth to. No, the other woman said, my son is the living one. Your son is the dead one. And the first woman said, no, your son is the dead one. My son is the living one. And so they argued before the king. Now, how could anyone or any judge solve this particular dilemma? Now, today would be rather easy because we could use DNA testing, but that was not an option in King Solomon's day. So what did King Solomon do? Well, here's the rest of the story in 1 Kings, reading on in chapter 3 here. The king replied to these two women. This woman says, this is my son who is alive, and your son is dead. But that woman says, no, your son is dead, and my son is alive. The king continued, bring me a sword. So they brought the sword to the king, and the king said, cut the living boy in two. And give half to the one and half to the mother. The woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she felt great compassion for her son. My Lord, give her the living baby, she said. But please don't have him killed. But the other one said, he will not be mine or yours. Cut him in two. And the king responded, give the living baby to the first woman And don't kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard about the judgment the king had given. And they stood in awe of the king because they saw that God's wisdom was with him to carry out justice. Now, King Solomon's answer is so legendary that actually versions of this story have traveled throughout the world. In fact, this story has captured the imaginations of people throughout history. Why? Well, because we, as humanity, we long for justice. We long for a judge who will be fair, a judge who will be honest, a judge who will see through the lies, see through the deceit to make things right like King Solomon did. This longing, though, is buried deep in every human heart. And it brings us to the very theme here in Psalm chapter 9. In fact, notice this. The big idea, here's what we're going to unpack. Here's what we're going to dive in and see in Psalm 9 here. Is that we long for justice in a world that is filled with injustice. So, take that longing for justice and let it lead you to God because He is the one who judges the world with righteousness. Now, this reality is at the heart of Psalm 9 when David writes in particular in verses 7 and 8, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. 
And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Every human judge is an imperfect reflection of the sovereign judge. And our longing for fairness, our longing for justice, is simply an echo of our deeper longing for God Almighty. This is why Psalm 9 is so relevant. This is why Psalm 9 speaks so powerfully to our hearts today. Because God brings Himself glory by ruling and judging the world with justice. Now, so far in our series here in the Psalms, we have looked at Psalms 4, 5, 6, and 7, which were all Psalms of lament. And last Sunday, Pastor Chris taught us that lament is how Christ followers express their suffering to God. In fact, this is what David is doing in each of these psalms that we have looked at thus far. He's crying out to God in his pain. But understand, David is doing so with trust in God's goodness and hope in God's promises. Now, Psalm 9, as we come to this morning, it's the first direct psalm of praise in the book of Psalms. David begins this psalm by by praising God as the sovereign judge of the world. In fact, he even calls all of us to praise God as well. In fact, significantly, this first psalm of praise, it, it lifts up God's name because he's a wise judge. He's a fair judge. He's a just judge. And then David ends the psalm, the second half of the psalm, in praying to God as the sovereign judge of the world. But here's what's interesting even about David's prayer. As he cries out to God in prayer, even his prayer is focused on the glory of God in judging the world with justice. And so even his prayer is a form of praise to God. And so in a very real way, this psalm is a psalm of praise for God's justice. Let's dive into it. Let's unpack this two-part psalm about God's justice. And what we see, first of all here, number one, is that the sovereign judge of the world is worthy of our praise. Now, in our culture today, we are in the habit of feeling our way into worship instead of worshiping our way into feeling. That is, we may depend upon our feelings to move us, even inspire us to praise God. But here's the deal. Feelings are rather unreliable guides. Feelings are fickle. Feelings are flighty. They are easily shaken, easily shifty. And this is where the Psalms are especially helpful. Because the Psalms are are dependable guides. Our feelings are not The Psalms provide the solid ground that we need to stand on for worship of our sovereign judge. And so whether we feel like it or not, Psalm 9 leads us into praise. And David here takes the lead in praising God in the first two verses. Notice what he says. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
And you can't help but see the heart of praise in David's words here. With all of his heart, David resolves to do something. And he resolves to praise God for his marvelous deeds and his glorious name. David's determination, his resolution to praise God is emphatic in his personal commitment. Did you notice it? Four different times he says, I will. He says, I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad and exalt. I will sing praise. And so he is resolute. He is heartfelt in his praise to the Lord. His whole being, everything about him is involved in praising God. His mind is engaged. Why? He knows what God has done. David says he will recount. In other words, he recalls all the things God has done in the past. All of his wonderful deeds. His praise is sincere. He's not just saying what he knows he's supposed to say. He's not just going through the motions, but he really means it. David thanks the Lord with his whole heart. His praise is also emotional. He breaks out in a song of joy to God's name. Praise, after all, is the joyful, happy gladness of exalting in God himself. And so once again, David here leads by example. He's urging us to worship our way into feelings rather than feeling our way into worship. Now, we learn how to enter into worship from his gratitude and gladness, his speaking and singing. And yet, notice this. At the same time, we have no idea what's going on in David's life here. But one thing is clear. He is intentionally looking beyond himself. And he's looking then at the beauty of God's works. In other words, there is this intentional spiritual focus upon David. A focus that is off of his circumstances and on God's gracious deeds. And this is the key to worshiping our way into feelings rather than feeling our way into worship. The next verses give us a hint of what's happening here in David's life. It appears... That at this time in David's life, there are some enemies around him. Enemies who are oppressing him. And if we look ahead to Psalm 10. In fact, what's interesting here, in Psalm 10, some early... Darla, will you help her and usher her out, please? In Psalm 10, some earlier translations of the Bible actually combine Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together into one psalm. And we get a clear sense of this, especially in verses 7 through 11 in Psalm chapter 10, where David describes his enemies, where he says his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. 
And so what David is describing here in Psalm 10 is that there are two disturbing things that he sees. And these disturbing things that he sees, listen, they disturb us as well. And we are familiar with this even today. And that is, number one, he's disturbed by the outrageous acts of the wicked. Now, listen, I don't have to go through a list, but all you got to do is watch the news, read the news. Even here in the last month, with the horrific tragedies of these mass murders, killings, you name it, whether it's here in our own country or around the world. And we see firsthand the outrageous acts of the wicked. And not just from afar, but perhaps you have seen it even up close in your own personal life. Whether it be around you, your neighborhood, at work, wherever, friends, family, whatever the case may be. We are familiar with the outrageous acts of wicked people. And David is disturbed by that. But there's also a second thing he's disturbed. Is that is the lack of immediate justice or judgment on them. And who here is not disturbed by that? When it seems like and when it appears people are getting away with their outrageous acts of evil. Where's the justice? David sees what is happening and it's awful. And worse, it seems, even in David's eyes, that they're getting away with it. However, notice this. David still has reason to praise God. Why? Because he knows that God is the sovereign judge of the world. And this brings us to to the reason for David's praise here. Notice that, first of all, that God demonstrates his justice. How? By destroying the wicked and rescuing the righteous. Look how David recounts God's wonderful deeds of justice just here in verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 9. He says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And so David praises God, but understand the specifics of his praise. He is praising God for judging the world with justice. How? By destroying the wicked on one hand, and on the other hand, by rescuing the righteous. In verse 3, this word, when, it tells us that David's enemies have not turned back against him quite yet. Which indicates that David is looking forward to God's deliverance. In verse 4, the verb forms here in this verse are such that David is saying that God's judgment has already been pronounced. It has already happened, but he is waiting for the enforcement of that judgment. And according to verses 5 through 6, God has, has already destroyed entire nations in the past causing them to be wiped off the face of the earth and remember no more. And let me just make a side note. When when David uses the word nations here, don't think of geographical nations with borders. He's talking about, in this sense, uh, uh, Gentiles. So thank God's people, uh, those who are in a covenant with God. God's chosen them out, the the nation of Israel. And if you're not part of the nation of Israel, you're, you're everybody else. And he's using that word in a very generalized term for Gentiles, everybody who is not 
part of God's people who have not committed to following God. And these people, they have not turned away. They're living according to themselves as their own God. And now they're being judged for it. And they're remembering no more. And now David, he anticipates this to be done even to his present enemies. And so in the midst of this very personal pain that David's experiencing, he praises God, but he does so in faith. In other words, he reflects on what God has done in the past while talking as if the judgment of God is already in motion. You see, his confidence in what God has done in the past, you know what it does for him? Man, it gives him hope about deliverance in the future. David knows that God will and already is making things right by judging the world with justice. Now, let me tell you, this is, this is big time. This is hugely important for us today. Because let's be honest, so many times we have to look past our present circumstances to praise God in faith ourselves. Listen, God may not always deliver you now. But if you know that God is on his throne, you can praise him in faith. And so whether you're being oppressed by family, coworkers, neighbors, or whatever the situation may be, or whether you see oppression from afar like we do in our whole country as a whole or around the world, we can still praise God. We have reason to praise. Why? Because based on what God has done in the past, we have hope in that God will be a just God always. And he is and will already is making things right. We praise him for his justice. He is the sovereign God. Number two, though, there's a second reason to praise, and that is because God is our stronghold. He is a stronghold for the oppressed because he will judge the wicked with justice. You see, despite the chaos and despite the evil that runs rampant on the earth, God sits on his throne. And God will rule and reign forever. David writes in verses 7 through 8, look at it. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And so from his throne, God brings judgment based upon true justice, righteousness and uprightness. In fact, you go to Psalm 97 too, and it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, what's interesting here about Psalm 9 is that this psalm is actually dominated by the image of God's throne. And that's rather significant because God's throne, that image, it is a symbol of, of God's sovereign reign. But understand, as king, God will judge the world through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, 
when Paul was preaching in Athens there on Mars Hill, he actually applied this verse here, verse 8 of Psalm 9, and he applies it to Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 17. Listen to what Paul says in verses 30 and 31. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why does God command all of us to repent of our sins? Paul goes on, he explains, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? None other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This means that David's hope of divine justice, and let me tell you, we all want divine justice. There isn't anybody here who wants somebody to get away with wickedness. Some of us, our, our, our shape, our personalities are more prone to that than others. I mean, it drives us nuts when we see something, even within our own family, our own kids, or husband, spouse, and that it seems like they're getting away. And we want, man, we want, I want to ride that, baby. I want to get after that. That's not right. That's not fair. I want them to understand what they have done wrong. We want justice. That is God innate in us. That's that's part of being made in the image of God. That's why we long for that. In David's hope of divine justice, it is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so God displays his glory in the world by judging the world with justice through Jesus Christ. And so when we read now here about the majesty and the glory of God's judgment here in Psalm 9, listen, we are ultimately reading about the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this truth, this ought to impact our lives now. As David explains, the effects of this coming judgment... In fact, he uses the metaphor of a fortress or a stronghold to describe where we as God's people, where we can run to in times of trouble. Notice it. Look what it says in verse 9. This is cool. It says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And understand, David is not talking about a literal, physical stronghold. He is saying it metaphorically, which means the stronghold is what or who? God. You need a stronghold. You need a fortress. You don't run to your physical home necessarily. We run to God. God is our stronghold. God is our fortress. And David also indicates that this stronghold in God is based upon the promise of who God is in verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. In other words, those who know the name of the Lord will place their trust in him. Why? Because they know that in times of trouble, God does not forsake Those who seek him. So those who may be crushed, but they trust in the Lord, they will find him to be a stronghold. God is the hope of all the oppressed. He cares for everyone who is beaten down and oppressed. And especially those who know him 
and call him by name. No wonder that now David, in the, in the logic and in the reasoning of the psalm, he now calls us, all of us, to praise the Lord along with him here in verses 11 and 12. When he says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so we see David's call of praise. Those who trust in the Lord should praise him. Why? Because he has not forgotten them. Now, this word sing, we've already seen it once. It's repeated from verse 1, but now David is calling for everyone to sing praises to the Lord. And the theme of their praise is the theme of this psalm, that the sovereign judge of the world has not forgotten the cry of the afflicted. In fact, David emphasizes that the Lord remembers the oppressed. How? How is God going to remember those who have been crushed, those who are beaten, beaten down, those who are oppressed? How does he remember them? David is very specific in what he says. By holding the perpetrators of injustice accountable. That's good news. You see, God requires blood. He demands punishment for bloodthirsty oppressors. In fact, you can go to this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, where it's first stated. In other words, what David is saying, based on a truth that is already taught in Scripture, is that every human life, is precious to God. Why? Because every human life is made in the very image of God. And he now, that is God, demands an accounting for the way that people are treated. Therefore, I would suggest that you argue that the judgment of God is obsolete Not relevant, doesn't matter. In fact, we don't want to talk about that anymore. That whole mindset is to argue against the very teaching of God's word and even the very nature and character of God himself. As one theologian writes, if there is no divine accountability for sin and evil, it is impossible to live out the gospel of Christ. To deny the wrath of God often means that one has not experienced the horrors of war and the tragedy of evil. Many years ago, Jerry Sitzer suffered the devastating loss of his wife, his daughter, and his mother in a terrible car crash. The car crash was caused by a drunk driver. In his book called A Grace Disguise, he describes his experience of God's grace in the midst of staggering loss. One part of Jerry's story relates to the psalmist's encouragement to trust in the righteous and just judgment of God. Jerry writes, he says, eight months after the accident, the alleged driver of the other car was tried in federal court on four counts of the vehicular manslaughter. I was issued a subpoena to be a witness for the prosecution, which meant that once again I had to face the man whom I had met on the road shortly after the accident. 
I dreaded this trip where the trial was held. I was so nervous, I actually got sick. I, didn't want, I did not want revenge, but I did want justice. So that the man whom I considered responsible for the death of four people would pay the just penalty for his wrongdoing. At least then, there would be some vindication for the suffering that he had caused. The prosecution was confident of victory. The case seemed so obvious, but the defense attorney argued that no one could actually prove that the accused had been driving the car since both he and his wife had been thrown from the vehicle. So the burden of proof was on the prosecution. A witness saw the accused get into the driver's seat only 10 minutes before the car occurred. Other witnesses heard the accused admit after the accident that he had been driving of the car. But the defense attorney was able to cast enough suspicion on the testimony of the witnesses to gain an acquittal for his clients. I was enraged after the trial, which in my mind turned out to be as unjust as the accident itself. The driver did, did not get what he deserved any more than the victims, whether living or dead, had gotten what they deserved. The travesty of the trial became a symbol for the unfairness of the accident itself. I had to work hard to fight off the cynicism within my own heart. I think I was spared excessive preoccupation with revenge because I believe God is just, even though the judicial system is not. Ultimately, every human being will have to stand before God, and God will judge every person with wisdom and impartiality. Human systems may fail. God's justice does not. I also believe that God is merciful in ways that far exceed what we could imagine or muster ourselves. It is the tension between God's justice and mercy that makes God so capable of dealing with wrongdoers. God is able to punish people without destroying them and to forgive people without indulging them. This is what Psalm 9 is all about. This is the promise of Psalm 9. The Lord remembers and he acts according to his just judgment. And every act of judgment is a preview of the final judgment to come which is now cause for greater praise. Like Jerry Sitzer, listen, all of us here, if we're honest, we all struggle with feelings of revenge, feelings of unforgiveness when we are offended, when we are oppressed, when we are done wrong. And the only way forward is to turn to the Lord, who is our refuge, who is our stronghold, who is even our avenger. We can afford, as Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, but only when we have determined by God's grace to put our lives in the hands of a holy, just, and merciful God who alone sits enthroned forever as the sovereign judge of the world. This second section of the psalm is now David's prayer. Notice it. The sovereign judge of the world is not just worthy of our praise, as David testifies in the first section, but now here in the second section of the psalm, he basically says the sovereign judge of the world is worthy of our prayer. 
All of David's praise now turns to prayer. A heartfelt cry for help. And David, let me tell you, he's in a hard place. And if Psalm 9 is connected to Psalm 10, then David gives us a glimpse into the tension of his soul when he cries out in verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see, David knows what we all know here. That there are times when it feels as if God is where? He is so far away. He's nowhere to be found. And he knows what it's like to be praising the Lord one minute and then the very next minute crying out to him for help. And so notice the content of David's prayer. First of all, David prays for God to simply respond to his need, to respond to his affliction. David's prayer is not desperate, though. It's confident. He prays in verses 13 and 14, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Listen, this is what every one of us want. This is what every hurting person wants. It's what David prays right here. We want deliverance and we want justice. And for David, God's deliverance circles all the way back to praise. David wants God to rescue him. Why? So that he can now praise God even more in the gates of the city. And you're like, what's up with the gates of the city? Well, in David's day, that was the public place where people gathered. In other words, it was the hub of the city. And so David wants to sing his praise of God before all the people of God. He wants people to know what God has done so they will praise God for themselves. In other words, for David, this is all about the fame of God's name in his proclamation of it. Second, David then prays for God to make himself known by bringing justice. David's perspective shifts again from his own personal request to the fate of the wicked. He looks beyond his own circumstances to the ultimate destiny of those who oppress God. He longs to see the wicked caught in their devices of wickedness. And so David prays here in verses 15 through 18. Look at it. He says, the nations, that is the Gentiles, those who don't know God, don't follow God, they have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. That is the place of the dead referenced there in the Old Testament. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. This vantage point for David of the ultimate judgment, it gives David more hope again. It gives David hope that the wicked will get the consequences that they are due to them. He knows that it's only a matter of time until the wicked are punished. God does not save his judgment to pour it all out till the very end of time. We know what Paul says in Galatians. God is not mocked. In other words, sin itself carries its own punishment. God makes himself known 
through even the natural consequences of our sin. And we all know what that is. We have all experienced, we have all felt the consequences of our own sin. And so, yes, there are moments that David feels like he has been forgotten. Justice has not been served. There are situations where he feels that there is no hope, but he now speaks with this vertical perspective that this will not be his lot forever. Do you notice what he said? For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And then third, David prays for God to simply put the wicked in their place. He concludes with a crescendo here in verses 19 through 20, where he says, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. God, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. In other words, that they are but mortal. This is all about God being victorious over proud and wicked people. Therefore, David calls for this divine action from God. He lives in the moment as if the future is already upon him. The moment when God will be seen for who he really is. And that man, especially wicked men, will be shown for who he really is. David tells us in Psalm, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, that God created people a little lower than the angels. And yet, what does our sinful nature do? We lift ourselves up even above the angels to take the place of God. In 1905, Harvard University built Emerson Hall to be the new building for the philosophy department. The design included an inscription on the north side of the main doorway. And so the Department of Philosophy decided that this inscription should read, Man is the measure of all things. In many ways, this quote All it does is summarize man's rejection of God. Nevertheless, the faculty instructed the architect to carve this quote above the door. The president of Harvard, Charles William Eliot, quietly decided otherwise. When the professors returned from the summer vacation, they found the building essentially completed and cut into the stone were the words, What is man that thou art mindful of him? As far as I know, the inscription still stands there today. This conflict between the president and the faculty at Harvard simply captures the heart of all of our rebellion against God. The human heart within all of us says, it's all about me. There is no one above me. I am my own God. I will do my own thing, live my own life. In fact, we're going to see next Sunday in Psalm 14 that that is the heart of the fool. But David calls on God to humble us with his overwhelming power and glory when he cries out, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but mortal. And so the question for all of us here as we come to the end of the psalm is simply, do you know who you are in relation to God, the sovereign judge of the world? Do you think of yourself as your own God, that you do not have to give an account to God? Do you live as if that's the case? Do you live as a fool, as if there is no God? 
Do you know that you are just a man, just a woman, yet who is made in the image of God, and so you are loved by God because God has provided a way of salvation to redeem you out of the misery of your sin through Jesus Christ? Have you lifted up your eyes to see God as the sovereign God of the world? David reminds us here that God brings himself glory by ruling and judging the world, and he does so with justice. For he is the sovereign judge of the world who sits on his throne forever. Therefore, praise the Lord for his marvelous deeds. Praise the Lord for his glorious name. Turn to him as your refuge and avenger. For he does not forsake those who seek him in times of trouble. Now what lessons should we walk out of here with this morning from this song? Well, there are so many lessons we could emphasize. More than what we have time for. So let me just leave you with one lesson, but a very significant lesson that I think captures the heart of this psalm in a way that we can apply to our lives today. And that is this. Praising God as a sovereign judge of the world leads to trusting God as a sovereign judge of the world. You see, for David... He has seen God's power in the past. And so what does he do? He resolves to praise God with all his heart for his marvelous deeds and glorious name. His present confidence in God, let me tell you, it's rooted in what he has seen God do as the sovereign judge of the world. And so David does not end so much as commanding God to act justly. He already knows that that's who God is and that's what God does. Rather, he's ending this psalm by preaching, in other words, to his own heart. He's given himself a pep talk that God will be victorious one day as the sovereign judge of the world. Yes, David says, oh, rise, oh, Lord. But what he's really saying is to himself, trust, David. Trust in the Lord. Listen, Your Lord, my Lord, he is the sovereign judge who sits on his throne forever. And so do you see now how powerful praise can be? When we praise God for what he has done and who he is, and in particular as the sovereign judge of the world, it should lead us to trusting God even more in the present. Listen, looking back, David sees both the present and the future differently. But looking up to God in praise, he gains a perspective that he doesn't get anywhere else. What we see and learn even now is that if we always keep our eyes on the horizontal, we will lose focus of the vertical. We We will lose a heavenly biblical perspective that God is still enthroned on his. And he rules and reigns forever. And that injustice that we see will be made right one day. His longing for justice in the world of injustice leads him to praise God as the sovereign judge of the world. And then to trust God as the sovereign judge of the world. And so in this manner, his praise has become for him this soothing balm to his hurting and fearful soul. 
And so if you're in the midst of oppression, affliction, whatever the case may be, listen, and you want, God, just give me a break. Listen, oftentimes that break is found in praise. You praise God for who he is and what he has done. And this same God, he invites us to do that even today. He invites us to look back in praise at his marvelous deeds, not the least of which is the sacrifice of his own son. And he invites us to trust him and trust in the ultimate deliverance through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what we see here in Psalm 9 is that praising God as the sovereign judge of the world, it leads to trusting God as the sovereign judge of the world. Now, the reason we don't praise is because our hearts are still in rebellion against the sovereign judge of the world. We are the fool of Psalm 14 that we will see next Sunday. And we need our eyes to be open. We need our hearts to be broken so that we will see ourselves for who we are in relation to who God is. Because I'm telling you, folks, one day we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. You're like, Where, how am I going to face up to that? Only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Your deliverance is found in none other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're banking on your own righteousness, you are the fool of Psalm 14. And so I plead with you to open your heart and your eyes to the sovereign judge of the world. Praise him for who he is and let it lead you to trust him as your deliverer in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you have not already. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for the testimony of David here in Psalm 9. Lord, help us to praise you even more as the sovereign judge of the world. Help that praise to then lead us to trusting you. No matter what our circumstances may be in life, Lord. Even in spite of all the injustices we see, perhaps even the injustices we experience firsthand in our lives. Lord, help us not to give up, but to see you and to trust you, that we would run to you to be our fort, our stronghold in times of need. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.